In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not there, but so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. One of the great pleasures of having this podcast is having the opportunity to talk with really amazing guests who have contributed massive, important aspects of richness to our Disney lives. And our guest today serves in that very special space as the composer of many beloved Disney attractions, um, both past and present um, over the past several decades. Um, and that is Richard Bellis. Um, he's the individual responsible for creating the scores um, for favorites, including Indiana Jones Adventure and the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, among many others. So it's really cool to be able to talk with him today about his career, his contributions, and ultimately um, find out what makes a great Disney attraction even better well, music plays a big part, and he has been responsible for affording us that magic through his scores. So let's get straight into that interview with Richard Bellis. Richard Bellis is the man behind the scores of so many popular Disney theme park attractions, from Dinosaur and Star Tours to Alien Encounter and the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. He's an Emmy Award-winning composer whose work for the Walt Disney Company spans across both decades and parks. Um, I realized that I first saw Richard more than a decade ago at the first E23 Expo during a fantastic presentation that featured Disney composers and songwriters, um, including the team behind the Toy Story the Musical, Brendan Melbourne and Valerie Vigoda, who have each been on the podcast, as well as Bruce, Bra uh, Bruce Broughton, who was recently on Notably Disney. Um, so today on the podcast, he is here to talk about his career, compos compositions, and creativity. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you, Brett. It's, uh, it is a pleasure to be here and uh, take a trip down memory lane. Well, I think that's perhaps a, a good segue into the very first question. Um, 
I would love to know more about your background in music and in particular, who were some of your musical inspirations growing up and why? Well, my background is extremely diverse, which turns out to be a great preparation uh, for working in the Disney parks. Um, I was a child actor, so uh, music wasn't my primary focus until I was about eight years old. My dad was a musician and a subsequently a music teacher at the junior high school level. Uh, had, had had a dance band. Um, my mom had been a double uh, stand-in for Myrna Loy in the old film days. So she had become a, an agent for children uh, in the movie business. And my dad, of course, was preparing to be a, a music teacher. So I got my first acting job when I was about three years old and uh, started studying piano at around eight or nine. Um, my first piano teacher was, you'll, you'll appreciate this, was really out of the norm. Um, I would go for my lesson. He would sit me down on the bench next to him and he would write out at that particular moment in manuscript, the first eight measures of a, a, a classic popular tune like Stardust or Lullaby of Birdland, an arrangement for piano. And we would go over it and, and then I'd go home. And if I came back next week and had practiced it, I would sit there while he wrote out the next eight measures. So what was happening was two things. I was seeing him write. Um, and hearing what he had written. And I was also learning chords like major seven and major and minor seven chords and nine chords and, um, and sus two and sus four uh, chords. And so this was the starting of my piano playing and this really encouraged me to do both of those two things, to write and an introduction into sort of the jazz side of things. So my dad was the first inspiration, and I remember him playing the surprise symphony, Haydn, uh, for me at about age two or three, and it just delighted me when the fortissimo chord came along. Um, and then as I got into my teens, I became interested in writing now and arranging and I formed a Dixieland band. I was a trumpet player by then. Um, and I would write arrangements for this Dixieland band. So I was listening to Al Hurt and Louis Armstrong and and from Disney, the Firehouse Five. Um, and the piano player in the Firehouse Five was Frank Thomas, who worked at Disney, I believe, as an animator. Mm -hmm. 
And he lived in La Cañada, where I was living and where my dad was teaching junior high school. And I went to junior high school and had my dad as my teacher and Frank Thomas's daughter was in my class. So like the Firehouse Five, I started the Dixie Six Plus Two, which is D-I-C-K-S-Y, very clever. Um, and I started arranging for that group around age 14. Well, that led to an interest in big bands, big band arranging, jazz. And those influences were Neil Hefty, the Basie album, E equals MC squared. I remember Quincy Jones uh, arranging for Peggy Lee's Blues Cross Country. And then there was the, the first surf movie um, which had a jazz score. Bud Shank uh, had created the score. I cannot remember the name of the movie, but it was a big deal, surf movie. Um, and then I got to hearing an arranger named Glenn Osser, who was the arranger for a number of artists, but Johnny Mathis among them. Now, the Johnny Mathis records when you were 14, 15 uh, were very important. If you went to a party and the person who owned the Johnny Mathis records couldn't come, it was almost like the party was called off because those were the slow dancing records. So I, I was highly influenced by... Um, uh, Johnny Mathis hits at that time. And when I was 19, maybe 18, 19, I think, I found myself actually working for Johnny Mathis as his conductor um, on a world tour. Um, and I think the other, th the other things that were influences were certainly the James Bond movie. I was, you know, a teenage boy uh, Sean Connery and the James Bond movies and the John Barry influence um, were very big. And the John Barry influence was very handy for what Disney wanted as a generic, but not dated, spy action type of score for the lights, motors, and action stunt show in Paris originally, mm -hmm. uh, and then in, in Florida. So um, you'll notice in those uh, pieces of music, those cues that there's a definite John Barry influence without trying to make it quite as dated as the original James Bond scores. So those I think were the, you know, once you, and, and this was more appropriate in those days than it is today. Once you start working, if you start working early, like I did at 18, 19 years old, the work becomes your school. You no longer continue in college and compose and record and arrange um, because it's hard to go back. So your your schooling becomes the jobs that you're working on and that's certainly what happened to me i i left 
college during, I think, the first year, um, which I was really only going to college because I wanted to be deferred from the draft. Vietnam was going on and um, I went to college because I wanted that student deferment and I left college in the first year to go on the road with Mathis. And subsequently, of course, got drafted um, in, into the army and, and spent a couple of years in the army. That's probably more information than you'd like, huh? I really appreciate you giving this collective context. <laughs> I, I, I was just entranced as you were talking about all this and, and thinking to myself, these experiences collectively really shaped you as not only a person, but also your career. You talked about those hands-on experiences, touring with Johnny Mathis, um, among others, really um, giving you that hands-on feeling of, of what it would be like to, to enter this really unique profession of working in the world of music. So I appreciate yes. that. Well, it's a, I regret not finishing the college education in music because I realized many years later that what that does for you is introduce you to music that was it your choice, you probably would never introduce yourself to. You're required to go to concerts, you're required to analyze particular scores that may not be your cup of tea, but all of that becomes your vocabulary. All of that becomes a contributor to what becomes your voice and, and your musical vocabulary. So I missed a lot of that. Um, uh, but as I say, I was working, I was ecstatic about working. And when I got drafted into the army, I thought, oh my God, this is the end of my career. I was just getting started. Now, nobody's gonna remember me. My credits, my few credits are just going to die. Um, but you know, you get, <laughs> you get what's available to you in life and you deal with, with what you have. And those experiences on the road were not available to the four-year music student in college either. So that's what makes the ball game. For sure. Well, and a lot of um, learning not only happens in the formal classroom, but also those immersive experiences where you're um, practicing certain skill sets. And I'm wondering, I know um, you had a career before Disney and, and during your period and working for the company as well, but could you maybe start um, kind of giving some context on that pathway to working for the Walt Disney Company um, in the 80s? I, I seem to recall a story that um, George Wilkins may have enlisted you to develop music for early Epcot. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I, I, I was an arranger for the first, until I was uh, in my early 30s. I didn't get involved in, um, in films until then. So I was an arranger, and uh, uh, George and I had become writing partners for a group called the Doodletown Pipers, a vocal group. Um, 
And when George uh, started working with Buddy Baker, um, Buddy had asked George for references on, you know, young guys. Um, and I was one of the young guys at the time. So I did some arranging for Buddy. Um, one of the great stories was that Buddy Baker hired about three or four of us arrangers for uh, the Imagination Pavilion. These were songs written by the Sherman brothers. There are four, mm -hmm. four songs, five songs for the Imagination Pavilion. And Buddy called all of us arrangers into his office and said, so here's what it is. We got these five songs from the Sherman brothers. We want you to arrange them in all different kinds of styles. And I, I said, Buddy, what, um, what's the instrumentation you want? And Buddy said, well, hell, it's the Imagination Pavilion. Use your imagination. <laughs> so <laughs> we were allowed to pick our own imagination, uh, to, our own instrumentation. But if, for example, I did a, um, uh, a percussion ensemble. I did a, a flute sextet using all of the ranges of the flutes. Um, all kinds, anything we wanted to do, plus orchestral arrangements of, of these things. And, and, you know, then they had to, they had a very long loop to create. So they used all of these different arrangements of those five songs um, to run in the pavilion, in the imagination pavilion. And that was sort of my introduction to Buddy. Now, Buddy was getting ready to retire, and George Wilkins was the heir apparent. Buddy had selected George to take over for him. Uh, and in the process, George called me up one day and said, what are you doing? I said, not much. He said, good, because we have about 70 hours of original music to write and record for something called Epcot. Over the next two years, we're going to be preparing this music. And, um, and that was sort of the beginning. Again, I was doing a lot of arranging um, of Sherman Brothers and other musical material. But we spent a lot of time on the Disney lot where there was a recording studio at the time. Um, and did a lot of, and wrote a lot of notes. In the process, I got to meet some of the other people that were working on Epcot, one of whom uh, was Tom Fitzgerald. And Tom Fitzgerald was a new producer for the Disney parks, for the Imagineering crew. And he had been given his first major, major assignment, which was Star Tours. And Star Tours, as you know, was the first time a motion simulator, a flight simulator, was used as an attraction. Um, so this was a, a, a very big deal, and they had a mock-up of the actual vehicle on the 
uh, on the Imagineering lot. And we would write it and, um, and then talk about what John Williams' music would be appropriate for the various places. We did a full recording session of all of John's music that we thought we were going to use and then edited that to go with the film that was being made for the attraction itself where you're piloted by a droid. But in addition to that, and actually more music, um, there were supposed to be some cue line or uh, uh, holding area music, pre-shows we called them at the time, that involved a lot of music. For instance, there was a droid's room where it was sort of a, of a cutout like a dollhouse where you could see droids on multi-levels working on the interstellar flight um, vehicles that were commercial vehicles and took passengers, visitors, to the various planets, Endor and the, and the various planets from Star Wars. And one of those I was asked to score was the droid's room, which turned out to be a piece of music that was included on almost every CD, park CD for many years. And that was fun. Uh, they ended up not building the droids room for, I guess, logistical reasons. But instead of the droids room, they have a droid uh, working on a vehicle, a single droid with a boom box next to him. And out of the boom box is coming the droids room piece of music that I wrote. And then I wrote some travel aid agent um, uh, music for the explanation of trips to the various, um, the various planets. Um, the trip to Endor Express, the Endor Express, to go to Endor where you will see these waterfalls and that and the other kind of thing, you know, so it was a travel agent type um, experience. So there was a lot of music that went with that and a lot of timing that had to go with the screen presentation. Um, so that was really what launched me into continuing to do arrangements, continuing to do musical direction of other people's music, but also original music uh, for various attractions. Oh, I love how you um, started the discussion on Star Tours because I actually had a question on here um, where I was going to um, ask you about kind of bringing your own style to properties, to brands that are very much in the public discourse and, and parts such as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, among others, um, but also infusing your own touch. And, and one comment I, or one point I had here, Richard, was just the, the uniqueness of the electronic pop of the droid rooms theme because it had a, it had a very distinct sound to it that certainly does not feel akin to you know that some of the epicness of 
the John Williams scores for the films, but it still feels very much that it could uh, be associated within the Star Wars universe. So I, I have to say, I really appreciated um, your ability to capture the flair of the uh, of the property, but also infuse your own um, kind of musical touch. And similarly with the advertisements that you discussed earlier, which feels really seamless within um, the, the environment of Star Tours. Oh, thank you. Well, the, dro the Droids Room certainly has, at least in my mind, a reference to um, uh, the Cantina cue from John Williams. Oh, sure. Um, but the thing that makes it sound different is that it is electronic, but it's all live players. So the drums are played by Ralph Humphrey, uh, but with electronic setups. Um, the percussion is played by Steve Foreman, and he uses a variety of things like oxygen bottles that he plays on and, and a Mazda hubcap with, uh, <laughs> with springs strung on it, uh, a, a big old button-looking Coke sign that he uses a, a, what's it called, a something ball, a super ball on. Um, and the other instruments were all run through various electronic processing to make them sound electronic, but it feels really good like live players. You know, you can, you can never really get the pocket of live players when one person is playing all the electronic parts. So I, I, I think that's the reason it sort of caught on because it feels good and yet it sort of feels like it's in context as well. That was a fun track. Yeah, and, and so illustrative of that era as well because we, we heard so much um, in the way of electronic music really um, becoming more mainstream in the 80s. But as you're saying that live element I think gives it a, a different touch. And, I, and I'm not sure if this is a word that perhaps you would use to describe it, but there's almost a kinetic feeling to the music. Like there's a, a motion and, and because it's, it feels very technical um, where you know, the, the droids are operating on, on different things, it, it has this sense of um, fun movement to it that um, is not always, uh, I'd say a part of all electronic music, but it, it certainly had that um, sentiment as well. You're right. It's the, it, it is the personality of the players, you know, and it's the fun of the players. I could not write every little break that the percussion section does. Um, uh, they made, you know, those four or five beats up themselves. And it, so it's a band, but it's an electronic band. It's not an electronic track. And that's sort of what I got from John's Cantina cue. You know, it was like the band that was playing in the cantina uh, on instruments that were not normal instruments. So th that aspect of it, I really wanted to emulate. Oh, I would say a job well done. And I certainly have to believe that for the, um, individuals who lined up in the Star Wars queue um, on opening day and, and, and for many months and years thereafter, 
um, and would be waiting at times hours to, to get on the ride and a portion of it would be um, in that room or hearing the advertisements <laughs> that um, even if it was a bit repetitive after a yeah, while, yeah. Um, nonetheless it provided a sense of um, immersion and uh, good ambiance for sure. Well, see, I remember, uh, I remember being 10 years old and going to Disneyland just after it opened. Um, and the thing I remember was that there was an environment of feel good where people could almost be dancing to the music that was going on. Um, and that was different than other I won't give any names, but it was different than other parks. The, uh, it, it, the thing about working for Disney, in the park areas anyway, is there are two things. One, they have no problem making you a part of the creative team, bringing you in, getting your ideas. There's no ego because everything is a committee, you know? Uh, there are so many aspects involved in creating an attraction. There are set design, there is engineering, there's audio, there's acting voiceovers, and, and there's video. So there are so many different teams that making you a part of the music team um, just seems like a natural thing they should do. And that's a delight. Bruce and I both talk about the most fun, the best jobs we ever have had was the Disney uh, projects. The other thing is, when you have a park that is going to use that music and that attraction, for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, like Star Tours, you've got a budget that's really comfortable and that you can work with and that you can be creative with, unlike, you know, some of the television movies and, and even films, uh, which are not going to last that long, except in syndication somewhere, and are certainly not going to make a consistent amount of money over 10 or 15 years. So the budgets are far less because the life of the product is far less. So working with Disney is fabulous because they're planning something that's going to last for a very long time. Um, and, and, that, and sometimes we're brought in or we were brought in a year before the opening of the attraction. So you, you know, you really get involved. It becomes a family and you really get concerned about every little note and what it means. And the other thing I'm sure you've heard before is that because there are so many disparate teams working on the same project, every attraction has a backstory. Uh, it's a backstory that maybe the people coming on the attraction will never fully realize, but it's there for consistency of the teams as a reference for the teams that are building that attraction. So that 
the set designers can say, well, if this is going to take place in this part of the world, then the trees in this forest have to be this kind of tree. Because, you know, we heard that so-and-so traveled to this part of the country, and that's where these trees are. And the same thing is true for the music. If you're doing the Swiss Family Robinson, then what is the very kind of squeeze box or accordion or pump organ that would have been used in that particular location at the year that this is supposed to take place. So you get authenticity and you get into those instruments and those instruments spark creativity for that particular attraction. So it's a lovely environment to work in because it's very creative and it's very helpful and it's very inclusive. I love how you spoke to the point about unique instrumentation um, and, and ways in which um, you all as musicians and composers um, figure out ways of manipulating them to, to create cool effects. Um, so I have some um, questions on that um, further, mm. um, further on, but uh, no, no discussion of Star Tours would be complete without um, a, at least a brief reference to a few iconic sounds that um, are for, forever embedded in our heads, and that is the chimes, the, the, few, the, the little cue um, before <laughs> the Star Tours advertisement that everybody knows about and, and loves. And um, as we talked about um, before recording, um, thankfully um, was still retained when the Adventures Continue version of the attraction debuted. Can you talk about the origins of that and, uh, and ultimately the impact yeah, uh, yes, and, it, and it, it won't take you into overtime because, uh, frankly, it was an afterthought. I don't think it was even described as something I should write initially, but uh, somebody said, well, you know, we've got these announcements. Maybe there should be like, like a chime, like in uh, the train station or something like that, that... Um, uh, that calls people's attention to an announcement, an important announcement of so-and-so is on track 43. Um, and uh, I had done a bunch of music at this point. So to me, it was, well, we never say throwaway, but it was an incidental piece of music. And the only influence that I can think of was the E.T. five iconic notes. The John Williams thing. And so I thought, I, you know, I spent about 10 minutes thinking, so what's the secret of that? And these five notes are basically a triad um, that ends on a non-triadic note. It ends on an A. Um, I think, I think it was in C. Um, let me see if I can find it on the piano here. Yeah, that was it. So that's, that's an F triad. And then it ends on the G. Which 
is not the most satisfying resolution. And that's on purpose because an announced chime should lead to the announcement. You know, it shouldn't go. hit any kind of cadence, any kind of finale. Um, so that seemed to work out well, but I'm telling you, it went down really fast and it was done on, I think, a DX7 originally. Um, uh, so I was amazed. I was amazed when I started looking up some comments about, on, on social media, about the new Star Wars and a debate going on, you know, the speculative fan debate about, well, Michael Giacchino is going to do it now. What do you think? Is he the right guy? You know, you know how all that stuff goes on. And one of the, one of the comments that took it in another direction was about the, I hope he won't be changing the announce chime. Couldn't do that. No, no, no. So there's all this stuff going on. And, and I saw one answer that Michael had on social media. They said, no, 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 that the announced chime is iconic. We can't touch that. Um, and I was surprised and delighted. I didn't think I'd ever written anything that was not disposable in the past. <laughs> and apparently this was. Um, so that's pretty much the whole, the whole story. Um, not not much in the way of of drama. It was never there were never any notes on it. It was not rewritten. Uh, it was just accepted and and became the thing. Well, if if a whole career could be summed up in a few notes, um, I think that does the trick. And uh, I, I love the parallels that you made to the the theme from ET because now that you mentioned that it, I, I can sense the similarities there. Um, yeah. And yeah, the same, same sort of uh, chord reference, you know, um, not wanting to just play a triad, but playing around a triad in a second or a ninth or something like that, you know, for sure. Well, um, I also want to speak, um, or I, I hope you could speak, I should say, to some um, other original attractions that you developed for the parks. One of them that uh, I find, and I'd love to learn about the instrumentation um, that went into Countdown to Extinction, um, otherwise known as Dinosaur, which was an opening day attraction for Animal Kingdom. That's a, that's a pretty unique score, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I didn't find a lot of that in my archives. Um, but it was, it was almost military, as I remember. Um, as if the new world order um, had come about and um, and we were now in this very government influenced yet scientific um, environment uh, so as I remember the, the, the 
the, the section that plays outside is sort of a march type of military thing. It was all electronic um, by design because I think it was probably a cross between wanting to be futuristic and inexpensive. Um, so we were not going back into the studio with an 80-piece orchestra. The interesting thing that I do remember is that originally I had scored the ride itself. And they decided that the music, it's not that they didn't like the music that I had created, but they thought that the music made the attraction, made the ride more comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, we know this from films uh, from the very beginning. You want to suck the audience into a film. And if it's the right music, it can help with that. But if it's the wrong music, it just makes the audience's brain go, oh, it's just a movie. That's okay. I've heard music in movies before, and it takes the edge off anything that's a little bit scary. So they tried it without the music, and it seemed to work with sound effects. Uh, so they took the music out of that, and now it's, I think there's a presentation in the auditorium that talks about what's been involved in creating this park and re revitalizing, uh, uh, reincarnating, if you will, the, the species of dinosaurs. Um, as I remember, it's kind of a Jurassic Park type of situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's pretty much the music. It scores the little presentation film in the auditorium, uh, the orientation film for the audience, and then plays in the outside queue uh, line and holding area. Right. Well, and I think wish I wish I could give you more, uh, but that one is hard to remember. It, uh, it it went down pretty quickly. No, that's quite all right. And I think what you're hitting on is a really important point for all of us to be mindful of: is that the absence of music at times on a ride can be as impactful, if not more so, um, than including it. But ultimately, with dinosaur, you're the, the score that you created in setting up the attraction um, establishes the tone. So the kind of, as you're saying, the more militaristic governmental type feel um, leading up to the entering the vehicles themselves. So. Um, yeah. And sometimes when you take, when you, when you have music and then you take it away, it's as dramatic as adding it in, you know? So if you've been in this music and now all of a sudden it goes away, you think, oh, so what's going on now? Uh, which adds a little bit to the intrigue. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of um, really distinct scores, you referenced it earlier, the score for the Lights, Motors, Action stunt show, um, which played for many years at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, originally, um, it debuted in Paris. Can you talk about the maybe distinct challenges of developing scores for 
something like a stunt show where it's maybe not as prescribed as a typical um, ride where you know exactly what to expect. A stunt show, you know, something could go wrong. The timing could be a bit off. How, oh, how, yeah. do, you, how do you approach that as a composer when there's so much unpredictability? Well, the, the, the motors, lights, motors action was actually easier than the first stunt show I did, um, which was, let me see, it was in the 80s, I think 89 or something. Was it Indiana Jones? Yes. Yes. And so this was a stunt show in the 80s with live stunt performers on a big set and playing field. Um, have you seen it? Did you see it? Oh, absolutely. Both of them okay. many, many times. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. So this one being in the 80s, the technology was not quite as sophisticated. But of course, being Disney, we had the most sophisticated technology there was. So I went down to Florida. Um, well, first, we recorded, we recorded John Williams' music again uh, so that we could edit it into the stunts. And I think, that's, I think it was two trips to Florida. The first one was to see what the stunts were, look at the scenes, and then find the music uh, that would be appropriate because the scenes were actually a routine of many stunts in one of the settings of Indiana Jones. Um, so I went down and I sort of timed things out roughly, looked at the scenes, and then went back, picked some music, and we re-recorded it in L.A. Then I went back, and this was the important part, we had gotten our hands on one of the very first digital editing machines at the time. Hmm. And we put that digital editing machine into like an RV van. And we would drive that van out onto the playing field while rehearsals were going on. And this was important because as the cast would rehearse the stunts, they would get better at them, and that meant that they moved faster. So the timings changed all the time they were in rehearsals. We would go there one morning and watch a rehearsal and time it on the, uh, with our stopwatches, go back into the van and re-edit what we had edited for that scene as sort of a suite. Um, and then once we're done with that, after lunch, we would play that edit back on the playing field and the stunt performers would rehearse to that edit to see if the timings worked out. And we did this a lot <laughs> and, and discovered that there are other variables besides the stunt performers getting better at the stunts. In Florida, temp temperatures can vary a lot. And when the temperatures vary or when it rains, the timings change on the vehicles. One of the vehicles is the plane 
that travels around in a circle while mm -hmm. he and the bad guy are fist fighting, remember? And the, uh, oh, yeah. and the propeller of the plane finally hits the bad guy and he blows up. Um, he actually goes down a, uh, a drop, drop outdoor uh, to a, an area below. But the plane's wheels are inflated. And when the temperatures would rise to the 90s and 100s, the, inf the, the inflated tires would inflate even more and it would run faster. Um, so all of this had to be run by a tech sitting in the front row who would press a button when the outcoming cue came to a fermata or a pause, then this person would press the button for the incoming cue, and that cue was written to be homogeneous in pitch, uh, and it would take over, and that would continue the scene. So when we did... Um, lights, motors, action. Now it was 2002, I think. Much better technology, but also much more challenging. Shorter cues that were in tempo, like action music. And when one took over from the other, when the outgoing cue gave way to the incoming cue, they not only had to match in tempo, but they had to match without losing a beat or gaining a beat, which meant that if a cue was going out in 4-4, the incoming cue would have to start on the downbeat of the next bar. Now, how do you do that? You either put a musician in the booth to press play at exactly the right time on the downbeat, which meant that you would have to have multiple musicians that do this because there are shifts, there are, um, uh, there are breaks, lunch breaks, dinner breaks, in which the show still goes on. So you'd have to have, you know, a half dozen or more musicians that are capable of reading the score and watching the action and hitting play. But we had the technology by then with SEMPTI code to make SEMPTI markers on the downbeat of the outgoing cues so that someone could merely on beat two or three of the outgoing cue hit the play button and the machine would wait until the downbeat of the incoming cue to kick in. So this meant that anybody who could see the car go right by that building could hit the play button and the machine would wait to sync the next cue with the outgoing cue. So this was, this was much better, but there were still a lot of shorter cues that had to be coordinated in that way. And again, but th this helped with the problem that if it was raining, the cars and the motorcycles um, would run at a slightly different speed 
than if it was scorching hot and the pavement was hot and they'd be running a little bit faster. So those were the main logistical problems. It's always the bleeding edge of technology with Disney parks. Uh, but this one was overcomeable. Um, it, 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 there have to be, in many cases, what we called on the new Indiana Jones Park in California, ride in California, we called it stuck in the mud queues. <laughs> and that was when you had um, a disabled guest that took a little longer period of time to get in the vehicle. And everything had to stop. So if you were on the bridge in your vehicle, they would hit the uh, the stuck in the mud queue, and uh, you know the wheels would you know, the sound of the wheels would spin, and this queue would just play until the whole line of vehicles was ready to start up again. Um, those kinds of things were interesting, um, and the other the other point of that was that it was the first time the Indiana Jones ride in California was the first time that the music was on board the vehicle. Prior to this, the music would play through speakers in the environment. Um, this time the, the music was on the vehicle and they started off thinking that what they wanted to do was put individual synthesizers on each vehicle and that would play the score well all the music's from indiana jones and even though it was in 2002 the synthesizers at that time that would be on board each vehicle were really bad emulators of the orchestra and i had to convince the imagineers that that wasn't going to work so I built, we had done the Indiana Jones stunt show for Epcot earlier, and I had the recordings of the Indiana Jones music. So we put together a medley of the Indiana Jones theme with orchestra playing, and then it would segue to a stellar version of electronic emulation on the same piece of music. And then that would segue to the synthesizers they wanted to put on the vehicles playing the same piece of music. And then it would go back to the original orchestral version. Well, this was so blatantly bad, you know, without the orchestra playing that everybody saw it and gave up. And we eventually were able to create digital recordings on each of the vehicles. Because now the vehicles, each individual vehicle would reach the certain scene at a different time. So there had to be a trigger for each scene that would then trigger the appropriate music for that particular scene. So interesting logistics. Um, and those were the hardest things because we're dealing with great music. We're dealing with John Williams scores. So the music that we had available to us was wonderful, but you don't dare do that in 
even 2002 with emulation electronics, you have to play the orchestral uh, version of it. Uh, so and, and that was and that was the challenges with lights, motors, and action, uh, but it worked out very very well, and uh, and probably a twenty dollar an hour person could hit play, and it would be perfectly in sync with the incoming cue. For sure. I think what you're speaking to with all, illustrating all these examples from both the stunt shows and Indiana Jones adventures, there's such precision involved with composing and um, you have a lot of different considerations to account for. Um, it, it really gives even greater depth to um, the overall composition process. And um, I think as a listener, I think greater admiration over how everything functions collectively to create a very um, exact experience. Yes. Yes. I mean, things like, it's, I think it started with Space Mountain where there was music for the various parts of the Space Mountain ride, but there were no rooms as such. So right. it was all open spaces, which means that all of the music in each of the various sections had to be at the same tempo and in the same key because you're transitioning from hearing one into the next section, which is simultaneously running. And that was the same thing we talked about, uh, you know, I mentioned in the email about the uh, Mexico pavilion. No walls, but constantly changing versions of three caballeros all having to be in the same key <laughs> and at the same tempo. Oh my gosh, yes, I, <laughs> I, I cannot imagine the challenges um, involved in that. And it makes me think too, and I believe Bruce may have talked about this um, in regards to Spaceship Earth, um, if not on, on Notably Disney, then in other contexts about how, um, you know, sometimes vehicles are stuck in between rooms where there's completely different scores um, yeah. based on the pieces of time or, or something like, um, you know, yes, it's a small world um, in a completely different vein, but um, perhaps uh, some parallels to El Rio, uh, to the Three Caballeros. So yeah. um, it's, it's fascinating to think about. <laughs> that was, I, I, that's the first one I think I can remember where that situation existed. Uh, and at the time, as I remember, they were using something called bin loops because everything was still on tape. Um, and so these, rather than having these huge reels, they had bins, which were boxes and the tape would go through the player and into these boxes, snaking into these boxes in just random loops and patterns, and then would come out the other side, um, you know, when it was time to loop the music around to the beginning again. Uh, so that was, that was the beginning, and I think they still, they still use it. They certainly did when I did the, the Mexico Pavilion. Absolutely. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, well, that was the, and that was the one where we needed in one scene a much slower romantic type 
of music for Donald wooing Daisy in a canoe in the lake. Um, and yet it had to be at the same click tempo as three caballeros, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun. and it had to be with the same chord changes, but it had to be romantic and different. And um, I found a way to turn those quarter notes, one, two, three, four, into six, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and write an entirely different melody in six, eight um, that followed all the changes and stayed right in the same tempo, but felt like a different piece of music. That was fun. That was a good challenge. <laughs> I, I can I could tell your enthusiasm when you were describing that to me via email and listening to the audio clips and subsequently um, you talking about that here. It's um, thinking of your body of, of work, Richard, it's really um, varied in terms of the attractions and experiences. And, and I also learned from you that um, sometimes, you know, good creations don't always um, surface. Um, they don't, they don't get used. Could you talk about um, your experience with creating an original score for the Circle of Life film um, at Epcot that ultimately was not used? Yes, it was obviously, I think, um, uh, replaced um, with another composer's. Um, it, it's an ecological, ecological film um, about the environment. Um, and I wrote, uh, I was the original composer that was brought on. And I wrote, and I can't remember how long it is, but I think it's probably in the range of 20 minutes. Uh, <clears throat> wrote a score and we recorded it with a large orchestra in LA. Um, edited it, mixed it all together. And then, and I never really got the full story on what they didn't like about it. Um, it may have been they wanted it as a more contemporary electric, electronic score. I'm not sure, um, but they did. They, they just replaced it. And once again, you know, that's for them, that's the beauty. They can change their mind. They can afford to change their mind. They can edit the movie, which meant it took a different turn and consequently needed a different score. And um, we had a we had a get together at the Imagineering uh, headquarters, uh, sort of an outside concert for the employees there, saluting the music of Disney. And um, Tom Fitzgerald. Uh, hosted a lot of it and introduced all of us, Bruce and I and the, and the Sherman brothers were all there and they played music from, from all of us. And Tom um, introduced this piece of music as uh, the, the greatest score you'll never hear. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, what a compliment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but it was fun, and and the um, 
and the visuals were lovely uh, as they always are so it was it was fun to write and it's fun to have now yeah well and i listened to the um the five minute clip and i know it's on on youtube um as well even if it's not labeled as such and what i came away from it um richard was the the notion of that it felt very sweeping to really echo the feel of the Lion King and environmentalism, um, mm. but also sentimental at the same point. And mind you, the Circle of Life film at Epcot had closed a few a few years ago. But I, I actually felt that there were some parallels between um, what you had created and and ultimately what was um, incorporated, albeit by a, a different composer. There were um, some parallels, although I think that also uh, drew a bit more from the actual. Uh, Hans Zimmer score. That's right. That's what it did. And that was the reason they wanted to, um, I guess maybe, I, I don't know what the timing was, but maybe when I started and was brought on board, the popularity of Lion King was not yet what it had become. And, um, or, you know, what often happens is one person will give you instructions and then somebody above that person will listen to it and say, well, yeah, but where's the, where are the songs? Where's the score? You know, we, the, we're calling it the circle of life. We need to have the music from the circle of life. And I seem to remember that one of my instructions was, no, it doesn't have to be the music from the circle of life. It can be just, you know, original score. So those things change over time, and that's fine. You know, we used to, when I was first getting into the business of film scoring, they would say, you know, if you haven't had a score thrown out, you're not a man yet. You haven't come of age. Um, and that's true. Many, many, many scores have been what we used to call thrown out or exchanged for someone else. So that was just one for me, and that's fine. Well, I, I have to say I, I enjoyed it and I definitely understand where Tom Fitzgerald was coming from um, because I was kind of blown away that um, it didn't necessarily make, make the final cut. But um, nonetheless, uh, you know, the, the, the one piece of work often influences subsequent projects, um, even if in indirect ways. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, if something works, nobody's going to throw it out. You know, they're just going to right right around it so yeah and you know i mean part of part of what the the enjoyable part of what being a film composer has to do with is the recording session is hearing it come to life because when bruce and i were starting in this business you didn't do mock-ups and you certainly, if you did some kind of a mock-up or played it on the piano for the director, it didn't sound like it sounded in your head. You know, we, we would write on, on paper with pencil and you sort of knew what it was gonna sound like. But when you got it in front of the orchestra, that was the first time you heard it. And trying to keep a straight face when you first heard what you had written with the LA musicians in an orchestral setting was 
<laughs> you could almost not restrain your emotions, you know, it felt so incredible. And now a lot of that is gone because we have to do mock-ups. So, well, you, you've heard it sort of, and you've gotten notes and you've changed it. <clears throat> a lot of that didn't exist, but certainly the ability to go in and record music like that is almost enough uh, of a reward that whether it's used in the, in the attraction or not, eh, doesn't make that much difference. Well, speaking of rewards or rewarding experiences, I know a big part of your career um, has not just been creating scores that many of us love, but also guiding other composers. And, and I'd like to kind of wrap up um, the, this main conversation um, before with some final questions in talking about the role of mentorship. In, in what ways would you say um, that you, in what ways would you say you have guided um, up-and-coming uh, composers. I know um, Joseph Trapanese is, is one example um, among others, but um, what are the lessons that you try to impart in, in guiding the next generation? Uh, well, I, I love Joe. He's, he is fabulous. Um, as are so many over the years uh, that I've been involved with, you know, my dad, I said, was a music teacher, so, and he was my music teacher. So for three years, I sat in a band and orchestra with my dad on the podium. Um, and that was, you know, a huge experience. In around 1981, 82, I was asked to do a lecture at USC. Uh, in the film scoring class there. And I continued for about 14 years doing lectures and, and being sort of a um, adjunct professor uh, in the SC program. Um, and over that period of time, there were people like Chris Leonards who came through the course and Christoph Beck. And I also did some teaching at U UCLA um, and then, of course, I did the ASCAP film scoring workshop for 21 years. And out of that came Joe and Eric Whitaker, the wonderful vocal uh, composer, Trevor Morris, Rob Duncan, uh, a, a new wonderful young lady who's making her mark, Anne Catherine Dern. Uh, and just a lot of folks that have gone on to have wonderful careers. And then after I stopped that, um, I've been doing Europe and Asia masterclasses. Uh, you know, what's happened is just that every major university in the world has now developed a film scoring course. Uh, some offering master's degrees, some even offering PhDs. Um, and there are also a lot of teachers coming out of, so we're, we're graduating hundreds of aspiring film composers every year. Uh, 2007, I wrote a book called The um, Emerging Film Composer. Mm -hmm. and it got very popular. So 
uh, as a result, I sort of got very popular as a lecturer and find it to be one of the greatest experiences I have. Um, a friend, uh, a, a friend who passed away a while back, Ray Colcord, um, used to call it the service gene that you, some people are born with a service gene. And like Bruce, I was president of the SCL and uh, we both now serve on the ASCAP, uh, ASCAP board of directors. And I think that has a lot to do with it. We get a great deal of satisfaction from passing on information. For me, it's like a purge of my brain because I love to ask why and examine what's happening and why things are happening. And also trying to preserve the quality of film composing and not waste an incredible legacy that we have. Uh, last night, North by Northwest was uh, shown on cable. Bernard Herrmann's score, uh, just fabulous. Jerry Goldsmith's score to Basic Instinct, just incredible. So we have this legacy and by working toward quality, it makes us a companion. It makes us a colleague of Goldsmith and Williams and Herman um, and John Barry and, and on and on. So my effort is always to try and uphold the quality of film scoring. And that's become challenging in the age of technology because it becomes so easy to create something that sounds just like film music. But is the thought process that went into creating that music, is the filmic aspect of that music strong is your ability to work with the director the the film creator the filmmaker um, and interpret that person in the script and interpret what the acting what the actors are doing and not overshadow what the actors are doing uh, how effective are they in the script and the direction and if they're very effective, I don't need to be that effective. I could take it over the top. So it's, it's the non-musical aspects that make film scoring quality, in my, in my view. Um, and so I teach mostly the non-musical but essential skills of film composing, of being a film composer. It is not 100% of the product as concert composing is. Um, you must have the skill of a concert composer, but you cannot write 
you cannot write your interpretation of what you're looking at. If the music is already saying that, if the film is already saying that to you, then to write music that says the same thing would be redundant. You need to write what the film is not saying, what it needs at that particular moment. And that's what the job of the music is. So those are the kinds of things that I teach. I don't teach how to voice four French horns on a three note chord. I can, we all can, but uh, it's, it's how do you spot a film? How do you spot? How do you spot the Indiana Jones ride and going through the various scenes? Um, those are the challenges, and those are the skill sets that you often don't get in a college course. Some you do, but whoever's teaching that course has to have been in the field. And, um, uh, and in some cases, you find that people have a lack of field experience uh, and are pretty much relating what they were taught in the film scoring course that they attended. So uh, that's a very long answer to, um, but, it, but it definitely is the thing that drives me to continue to, uh, to work with aspiring film composers, because these things, how you interpret the film and what it needs, are not things that change. The styles of music change every decade. The technology changes even more uh, often than that. But the basic skills of storytelling are the same as what they were when the storyteller stood in the town square and brought a lute player along with him to accompany his story. And the lute player would then double when he fed, fed the horse and the, took care of the wagon and all of that stuff. You know, it's the, it's the same job. Storytelling is storytelling from the beginning of time. Um, and, uh, and music accompanies um, I, I call the lute player the, the storyteller's sidekick. Uh, and that's what we do in movies as well. We're the sidekick. Well, very important sidekicks for sure. And the authenticity and passion in which you described your approaches to teaching and translating that um, also into, into your book um, really shines through. So um, I, I really value that perspective. And I think it illustrates the importance of not only um, you know being accomplished in your craft but making sure that um, you're providing guidance and support um, to to fellow colleagues in your field uh, well thanks that's that's the aim for at least um, the rest of this uh, rapidly <laughs> coming to an end existence um, um, but yes, I think it's an important one. I'd like to see film scoring. You know, there was a there was a suit recently um, that the theater owners association, primarily in Europe, brought against um, the the PROs, the um, 
performance rights organizations in Ireland specific. And they actually took the PRO to court over the fact that they contended that the license fees for music um, were inflated these days because music wasn't import as important these days as it used to be. And how they ever got that to court is beyond me, but um, uh, that could easily become a perception and I would like to see that avoided. Music is very important today. One note at the right time, um, doesn't have to be complex, but the right note in the right place and coming in in the right place can be incredibly important to the film. That same note coming in two seconds later could absolutely destroy that scene, you know? So you have to be conscious and skilled at those kinds of things. For sure. Well, I'd like to wrap up with some Disney-related uh, opinion questions. That, okay. Um, I promise <laughs> you there are no wrong answers. Um, <laughs> there might be some common answers because um, I'm going to ask you three questions that I ask of all of my guests. Um, so the first one, uh, and, and, and an additional one as well, Richard, um, but the first one is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh, the, the, the soundtrack, the film soundtrack that, that had the, I mean, this is so obvious, but I mean, it had a huge effect on me, was Fantasia. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and interestingly, this was animation done to existing music and maybe that's why it was it was so it affected me so much because it was it was so perfect um that it really it really had uh an effect on me the there was a um god i can't remember the exact name of the film something prairie um oh the vanishing prairie vanishing prairie i think yeah. yes That's disney true life adventures yes right um that had a big effect uh on me as well and those i think are the two you could probably name things that i would go oh yeah that too um uh, but those, I think, were the two soundtracks. You know, I didn't know that I wanted to do film scoring until I was probably 17 or 18 when I got interested in it. I was happy being an arranger. I loved arranging and still do. So I was, I was listening to the orchestration, to the arrangements, uh, to just the whole musical performance, and, and those were striking. So I did know that visual and music together um, was a thing and was a thing I was very interested in. Very cool. So your next question is, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Most recently? 
that's difficult um, because I don't, I know this is terrible to admit, but I don't really go to movies and I really don't, although I admire the hell out of the successful Disney franchise movies, I don't go to a lot of them. So um, I can't, I can't really answer that. I can tell you that, um, again, because I'm an old guy, um, the magic, which I think is kept alive, by the way, the magic of um, when you wish upon a star and those, those classic Disney pieces um, have always influenced me to some degree when, when writing for Disney. Um, I recently, uh, sort of an inside music joke, you will understand. Um, I recently made a post on uh, Facebook uh, saying, why am I, why are there so many Disney credits in my background? And I said, I guess I'm just an ad nine kind of guy um, because the, the sparkle, the, um, the magic of the adding of the ninth degree of the scale to a major chord, um, the Disney sound is still sort of embedded in my psyche. And I think always, always will be. And I think it exists in the newer works that I have heard that I cannot, I cannot specify one for you. But uh, certainly Alan Menken um, has it. Um, and the writers of the new songs have it. Um, the, I don't want to... I hesitate to call it a formula because we tend to think of a formula as um, uh, as denigrating, and it's not at all. It is a trademark. It is a sound that when you hear it, you go, "Oh, yeah," you know, just the same as when you hear um, a jazz piece, you go, "Yeah, whoa, okay." You know, I mean, they are different attitudes when you hear different kinds of music. Um, and there is a Disney sound um, that is, the Disney sound is stuck in my head rather than a particular title. It's qu that's quite all right. And I, I certainly think the example of When You Wish Upon a Star is very illustrative of that Disney sound. So I think that's quite apropos. And someday my prince will come, you know, those, those kinds of, of things. Um, unfortunately, I think when you wish upon a star, they lost the copyright to, as I remember, or sold the copyright to. That was, I think that's the one. Been regretted for a number of years sure. by the publishing company. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, uh, and maybe this might be a, a tough question to ask, but I'll still um, pose it anyways. Um, this is a, a third typical music question. Would you say there's a Disney film that you feel has the most underrated music? So maybe whether it be the songs or the scores, but maybe something that 
kind of falls under the radar. Mm, yeah, that is, that is tough. I would have to have a much broader vocabulary in Disney films, or else I'd have to have a memory. And at 74, you know, there, there, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of information in this brain, but like an old computer, the access time is uh, much slower than it ever was. Um, what are give me a give me a couple of answers that other people have had that's a yeah absolutely well one common one is alan menken's score and songs for the hunchback of notre dame um that is often used um mm. and, and i've had other guests who have talked about some of the the classic films of waltz era so whether it be bambi or I think even Peter Pan, Pinocchio. Um. Yes, well, I certainly, I certainly am familiar with those and agree with, with that. I mean, uh, Buddy's, Buddy's scores. Uh, and Buddy, Buddy was underrated because he was on salary. You know, he was an employee of Disney. He was not an independent contractor, but he was one of the few people who was signed by Walt himself personally. Um, and because he was on staff, you know, uh, a lot of that music didn't, didn't get appreciated for how wonderful it was. Um, and, and I'm at a loss to even remember the names of those films. And I would sound like I was absolutely stumped if I started looking on Google while we're talking. So I, I won't attempt to do that. Um, but you know, the, it, the availability of music today of free music today or inexpensive music today um, makes so much more music available to be appreciated um, than it was. People were, audiences were more naive when it came to the score in the 40s, 50s, and 60s even. Um, it was there, and unless it was a musical number, then the score was part of the emotional environment, but wasn't necessarily appreciated for being a score. And also, you know, we had, in the United States, we had 20 film scoring professionals in the in the uh, 40s and 50s um, now we have thousands uh, so we have more people being aware and passing on their awareness of the musical scores and i think that's a big that's a big difference today yeah what a gift that is for sure yeah so the last question for you this is uh so with every um, interview, I ask each guest a unique final Disney-related question, and 
Um, this might be tough because I, I imagine there might be <laughs> a lot of, not, not necessarily um, a, a lot of unknowns, but rather um, hard to pick a favorite child, but I'm going to ask it to you anyways. Do you have a favorite piece of music that you have composed for the Disney theme parks that you are proudest of? If you change the word composed to maybe created, because sure. I've done some, I've done some arranging and some musical directing, um, you know, putting putting music together, re-recording it, that type of thing. Sure. That that I am um, pretty happy with. I think the China Pavilion is one of them. Um, uh, the pressure of of doing a new score after Buddy Baker's. Um, you, you may know this, the story of it, that um, after 20 some years, um, it's sponsored by the, by the government of China. But it's also, the music was also specifically directed to be for Western audiences, but sponsored by the government of China. So, after as many years as it ran with Buddy's score, China said, you know, um, in the last 20 years, we've changed a lot. We think it might be time for you to come back over and film some, film some of the newer things about China, the new China. So originally, because it's a 360 degree movie, um, originally nine, 35 millimeter cameras were mounted on a single pole and they shot 35 millimeter film uh, out of nine different cameras for the 360 degree movie. Um, I'm sure they was a lot easier with digital cameras uh, if that's what they used this time. But the legacy of Buddy's, uh, Buddy's score was always in the back of my mind. It was a wonderful score. Um, we actually kept a couple of cues that are the original cues that Buddy had done. And um, I was also affected by the pressure that it had to pass muster with the Chinese government and yet it was written for a Western audience. So I researched heavily um, Chinese music, which was not easy. Um, I, I would be lying if I said I could, I could research more than 10 minutes at a time before I had to take a break. Um, if you are not raised in a culture, the music for that culture can be completely unfamiliar. And while I used an orchestra and some fabulous Chinese musicians that live in this country and had been told that, wow, the Chinese music um, is really very good, I still wasn't sure that it was substantive. Uh, for all I knew, I may have, it sounded Chinese, but for all I knew, it may have been the equivalent of a nursery rhyme, you know, in Chinese music language. Um, so I was nervous through the whole thing. 
We mixed it in nine speakers um, because there was a speaker for every screen. But I think it came out um, it came out pretty well, and I think it fits with the film pretty well. So that's definitely one of the favorites. Um, I think the the one that never made it into the park, the Circle of Life uh, suite uh, of music, is something that I'm I'm happy with. Um, and you're right. There are there are many. I did the I did the cue music for the holding area for uh, the Michael Jackson film. Yeah, Captain EO. Captain EO, um, and that was fun. You know what? That was with the same band without the electronics uh, that I used for Droids Room. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, uh, that was fun. There's just a lot of stuff that's been a hoot. I've done some main street music, um, some arrangements of the, you know, 1930s and twenties, uh, arrangements, um, and some of the music for the Hawaiian music for the Tiki room when it switched to Lalo and Stitch, Lalo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch, because uh -huh. um, I had grown up with uh, relatives in Hawaii and had played some ukulele and Hawaiian songs and things like that. So I was familiar with that as well. Uh, a diverse background in music came in handy. Um, and I've enjoyed every minute of, uh, of what Disney has asked me to do. I kind of miss still doing it well and yes you, you hit on the tiki room we didn't even talk about some of your projects for tokyo um as well um so yeah your your influence has been really all over the world um lights motors action originally in paris your stuff in tokyo and certainly um, domestically in the united states richard people know your music all over <laughs> <laughs> and in in hong kong at the uh, the fountain um, the main fountain uh, the main the fountain at the main entrance to the hong kong uh park i did the uh, the disney suite of musics that uh, of music that goes on there so yes wow. it has it has gotten around and uh, and on a lot of cds which i'm very appreciative of Absolutely. And yeah, that's how, um, uh, for many of us, we become first familiarized with, uh, with particular names and making those connections. And certainly with the influx of information online, that certainly expanded our knowledge and my knowledge. How can, uh, to conclude, how can listeners follow your, your work? I know you have a personal website as well. Can you share a little bit more? on how people can learn more about you. Well, the, the, thank you. The, the personal website is, um, while it's open, it's under construction, and I don't think any music is available um, there. I mean, the best source of it is, uh, is actually the CDs, which are, you know, wonderful compilations of many of the writers who have uh, who have worked on the parks past and uh, and present, um, 
And I think that's probably the best source. You know, we haven't been able to, we don't have the right to release any of the music that's in the parks. Some of it is old enough that I don't think anybody's going to sue us. So occasionally I'll put someone on YouTube. But the, uh, <laughs> the medley that, that I sent to you that wasn't used got, um, got, pulled, got pulled for copyright um, uh, infringement, um, not for the music, but for one of the graphics that I used to um, illustrate a part of it. So I've pulled it off temporarily, but I will, I will be putting that back on the YouTube channel uh, shortly. Oh, yes, there are lots of different spaces to uh, be more familiar with your work. And, and certainly for anybody who is able to go to Walt Disney World right now and to, to hear some of your tunes across the different parks, that's uh, another wonderful and viable avenue. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of area music um, that I don't I don't know has ever appeared on the on the CDs. But you know, you, my my wife and I would go visit the park, and we'd be the only ones standing around the bushes listening to the speakers in in the various areas of Epcot. You know, just standing there <laughs> waiting for the queue to end. That's hilarious, and I, I will say you are not the only one. Uh, I can I cannot speak to that personally, although when I visited the parks, certainly I'm attuned to it. I have heard of other Disney podcasters and uh, Disney music aficionados who have, especially before the early days of YouTube, would sit next to bushes and record yes. the audio. So <laughs> it's not just the composers themselves; it's actual fans. Yeah, or take a take a second trip on the uh, tram or something like that <laughs> to, to hear some of the music. That's fun. Well, Richard, it has been an absolute delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time, your insights, and um, and also very importantly, your your many contributions over the years, um, both in arranging music, um, creating scores, and, and pieces that all of us are very familiar with and fond of too. Well, thank you, Brett. I, I mean, you um, you do this so well. Um, uh, <laughs> Bruce, in, in talking to me about your interviews, said, yeah, and he's not a goofball. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was high praise coming from Bruce. Um, because we do, we, we do a number of these things, and they, and they range in professionalism and yours is definitely right at the right at the top i really appreciate the time that you put into preparing for uh, for this thank you thank you very much richard mm -hmm. you're welcome and thank you again to richard bellis for coming on no to play disney it was a real privilege to talk with him to learn about his career and many contributions so the next time you are at walt disney world and experiencing an attraction like Dinosaur or Star Tours or Reflections of China. Think of Richard. Uh, think of how he has put his heart and soul into these projects. And um, ultimately, we are all the winners for being able to experience them and 
feel like there's greater richness to the attractions because of those contributions to capture the right feel, the right sentiment, the right tone. That's all the work of the composer working in tandem with an amazing team at Walt Disney Imagineering for creating that mood and for making sure that you are experiencing the right feelings and uh, just having a good time. So uh, once again, pleasure, Richard, and I hope all of you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.